This is a quick disclaimer. Although the wise investor is trying to educate people on personal finance, what we talk about on the show is not actually financial advice for your personal and unique situation. Before trying to do anything with your money, always consult a professional. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School, presented by the Wise Investor Team. Making Canadians more financially literate, one post at a time. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School. This is actually the start of season four, believe it or not. We're starting season four now, and this is actually episode 30, so... Kind of a milestone, 3-0. Can't wait for episode 100. That will be uh, an interesting one. And today we have Pam Draper. Today we're going to be talking about cryptocurrencies and what you need to know if you're interested in investing in cryptocurrencies or buying some cryptocurrencies. Um, But before we get started, a little word from our sponsors, um, King Street Media. They are the ones that do all the behind the scenes of this podcast, editing, launching of it, promotion, and the micro content that you see on Instagram and LinkedIn. For any kind of like social media and online advertising, you can look up King Street Media, our kingstreetmedia.com. All right, let's just jump right into it. Pam, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. No I know problem. Thank you for I'm having me. So excited to have you on today because you cannot imagine how many people DM us on our Instagram profile or on our LinkedIn asking about cryptocurrency. They've been doing That's it for great. the last three years. I think one of our first podcast episodes was on Bitcoin and okay. uh, Bitcoin was skyrocketing at that point of time. And then it took that big dip back in like, I think it was January of 2018 or December of 2017. Uh, and still, people are very uh, interested in the whole sphere of cryptocurrencies and investing in it. So it's a pleasure to have you on in order to debunk some myths, as well as chat about how people can actually get their feet wet in that. How did someone like yourself get into the cryptocurrency space? Yeah, sure. Um, it certainly wasn't intentional. I spent most of my career in investment banking uh, in Toronto, working for CIBC and then for BMO. Uh, and most of my clients were natural resource clients, so energy and mining. And I visited Calgary and Vancouver often seeing those clients. And one of the clients um, that I obtained just because of the location was a company called Direct Cash Payment. So when they sold the business, money was changing from like it was cash in the ATM side and then it went to cards. Um, they saw that transition and moved with it. Um, and then they're watching the space and they're watching this new form of, of money, if you want to call it that, uh, being Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. The largest shareholder, Jeff Smith, he asked me to leave BMO, move to Calgary and start this business with him. And when he proposed that to me in December of 2017, uh, I said, absolutely not. That sounds completely insane. I'm not moving <laughs> from Toronto to Calgary. I'm not leaving the bank um, and getting into this new world economy. But then I thought about it over the holidays. Like I said, that was December. He said, think about it and let me know in January. Um, And I kind of went from how could I possibly do this to how could I not do this? I love that because Jeff Bezos, he speaks a lot about uh, regret minimalization. And he goes, when I'm on my deathbed, when I'm 90 or whatever, right? Uh, What were the things that I would regret doing? And sometimes those are the risks that some people are afraid to take. So so how do you manage your time between the two companies as a CEO of two different companies? Like, 
do you just go insane you, uh, at times? Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. Uh, no. So, I mean, it, it's kind of similar to when I was in banking. So when I was in banking and I have multiple different clients or multiple transactions that I was working on, um, I feel like I've kind of truly been triaging my work schedule for my entire adult life. So it really is just a function of what needs to get done at any particular date, time, et cetera, and what is the most urgent. So I'm constantly kind of managing through my inbox or my to-do list thinking, okay, what needs to be done today? What needs to be done this week? What needs to be done this hour? Certain things are, are more time sensitive than others. Sure. And do you, have a, do you have a system or framework that you use that uh, maybe some people could get some tips from? Like, do you use a particular software like monday.com or something like that? For me, it's all about um, Outlook, which is probably pretty antiquated to a lot of techies. Um, and a, literally a handwritten to-do list. For some reason, I can't move my, I've moved everything paperless for the most part, but my to-do list, I can't. There's something very physical about writing things down and crossing them off that just works for me and the okay. way I think about things. Um, and then Outlook, I have my emails that come in because everything tasks are typically I find initiated by email in today's world. So if they need to be addressed, it sits in my inbox. And as I do it, I move it to different folders. I'm a crazy folder maniac when it comes to, to Outlook as well. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so that's so kind of old, my old school way, paper and pen. I do the same thing. My desk is full of papers, just with to-do lists all over them. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I have a question for you because we've had a lot of pretty powerful women on the podcast before. And I, I was in the banking industry before as well. And I hear your story, banker, investment banker, oil and gas. Those are traditionally male-dominated industries. Um, maybe it's a little bit different in Canada, but I'd love to ask you, have you ever uh, had to overcome any male biases or kind of that kind of male-dominated culture in the industries along your career journey? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that I have. Um, I've never, to be honest, really felt it. Like, people ask me this question all the time. They have for my entire career um, and and women asking it from time to time. And I think some people feel it more than others, but my sister works in a similarly male dominated industry. And her and I have always said um, that being different, whether for whatever reason that is, whether it's male, female or race, et cetera, um, it makes you stand out. So if you're in a room with 20 white men and you're the only girl, um, you stand out. And in my career, I've always thought that was, a, I felt that's helped me more than hurt me because you're noticed. And then you have their attention, put your head down, work hard, produce a good product, um, and you'll be rewarded for that. That's kind of the way it's always worked for me. And if I was one of the 19 white men in the room who was the same age, I don't know if I would have been as noticed as much. You know what I mean? I like that. I love that. Very, yeah, very internal-based perspective. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's switch gears a little bit to crypto. And I got a list of questions for you that some of our audience have asked and then some that I have for you as well. Crypto's massive topic in uh, business and uh, the investor scape right now. So can you explain uh, what a cryptocurrency exactly is by definition and how, because a lot of people get confused with cryptocurrency and the blockchain and people yeah. use it uh, interchangeably, but they're not the same. Would you be able to kind of describe what both of those are and what the differences are? Yeah, so, so cryptocurrency purely refers to the cryptography behind the asset that you're looking at. Um, and if you take Bitcoin, for example, money could really be, and historically, if you think about it, always has just what the masses believe to be money. 
so at some point seashells were money for example then they came around with precious metals and coins were money gold was money eventually government-backed paper is money if you think about it it's really just paper so then electronic money comes along like bitcoin um and it has a value if people believe that it has a value similar to how money has operated over the years um and what the cryptocurrency is is really just that digital representation of uh, a bitcoin which has the value that society puts behind it the blockchain on the other hand um is the network essentially on which the crypt cryptocurrency operates so the bitcoin blockchain um is a way of validating transactions there's miners that go in and do computing programs that speaks back to the cryptography uh that I spoke about when that feeds into the name cryptocurrency um but the blockchain is really the network the cryptocurrency is the specific um entity if you will it's not an entity it's not like a company but it's the bitcoin it's the ether it's the xrp um and then the blockchains are the network behind those the ethereum blockchain the ripple blockchain uh the bitcoin blockchain so would it kind of be like um the internet is the it like kind of like the world wide web is the blockchain and a website is like a cryptocurrency would that be kind of an oversimplification simplification of it i could see it something like that yeah cuz not many like people Yeah, sorry, go ahead. If it was an actual if bitcoins were an actual coin, if they weren't digital, bitcoin would be the coin and then the network behind it would be the blockchain. I see. That okay. allowed you to transact. We've had people try to explain the definition of blockchain a couple times on this podcast and even when I watch it like on YouTube videos and stuff, very difficult concept to describe. So, very good yeah. job. <laughs> I don't know if I did that well but <laughs> it is No, you did all right. Oh, lots to take away for sure. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so uh why don't we talk now we know what a cryptocurrency is and that it's different from a blockchain mm -hmm. which is a platform that it's on. Um so what is a crypto exchange and how does it how does it differ from a normal or a public market stock exchange such as the Toronto or New York stock exchange? So it's it's actually very similar to a Toronto or a New York stock exchange. Um the cryptocurrencies listed on a cryptocurrency exchange um would be similar to the stocks listed on a stock exchange if you want to think about it like that conceptually. So a cryptocurrency exchange in its simplicity is just truly an online platform where traders like me and you can log into an account um and purchase different cryptocurrencies or sell different cryptocurrencies or, or trade them among each other similar to how you would if you were to log on i mean the difference really truly is you can't log on to the TSX if you're you and me and buy a uh, stock directly from the TSX what you do is you log on to an investment platform like a Bemo investor line for example and you buy off that so it's kind of more similar to um an online trading platform than the true stock exchange okay Yeah yeah and then what happens on the back end like do people like uh like a TD place the trades for you or a BMO they place the trades for you and have the buyer and the seller and join them together So yeah Bitvo would do that for its customers Bitvo specifically and and other cryptocurrency exchanges would work similarly is we have a pool of customers that are buying and selling on the exchange all the time Canada tends to be a little bit of a less liquid market than the global crypto exchange market 
So what Bivo does um, is we augment what we call that liquidity, which is just the demand of buying and selling amongst our customers. We augment that uh, demand with global exchange volume as well. So we have partnerships okay. with three global exchanges where we're drawing in our order books from those global exchanges to ensure that our prices are comparable to what you would get in the global marketplace. Fascinating. Fascinating. What a world we live in. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask another question on that public, uh, public versus uh, crypto uh, exchanges. Uh, a big popular investment strategy is for people to buy IPOs. So initial public offerings, Uber's looking to go IPO, Airbnb's looking to go IPO. They have an initial public offering where everyone buys the shares, right? Um, mm -hmm. What is the difference between an IPO versus an ICO? Right. So an ICO is an initial coin offering. Um, so traditionally what that is looked at is organizations start up and it's supposed to work like a utility token. So if you have an online platform um, and you want it's a marketplace where you're going to have things that you can trade for, you can use these tokens to interact with the marketplace. Um, a company would sell shares of a stock um, and then the recipients of those shares would benefit or not benefit depending on the performance of the company and the demand for those shares going forward. Um, ICOs are supposed to work like a utility token where the token has actual utility. So you're using it for something very specific, not just to benefit in the value, if that makes sense. What was happening in the ICO craze was people were treating it like an IPO and, and investing in or purchasing it just to benefit from the appreciation or depreciation of the value of the coin, um, which may or may not, depending on the circumstance, have had any utility. Uh, I see. So they were acting like an IPO, but circumventing the securities laws by saying, well, we're an ICO, it's a token. Yeah, but it's because, not acting because like most, that. Because most companies, they do an IPO to raise money for, the, for their company, right? right? Which is right. highly regulated, lots yeah. of things that you need to jump through in order to do an IPO, yeah. right? But with an yeah. ICO, people were kind of just, because what are the regulations for an ICO? Almost anyone can do it, No. Well, no. So that's how people were treating it and that's what they were doing. But if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, then it is a duck. So securities regulators were saying, well, no, that's not an ICO. That's not a token. It doesn't have any true utility. It's actually just an IPO, but you're not mm -hmm. abiding by securities laws. So they've cracked down on that extensively in pretty much every jurisdiction. So the regulators are all over it now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. How does someone go about buying a cryptocurrency researching a coin, picking a wallet or an exchange or a provider. If you can guide me through that thought chain on how someone would go about doing that. The good news is, is it's gotten easier, I'd say. So when I first got into this business, which wasn't even that long ago, call it three years, it was really difficult to find legitimate information and to determine what information was legitimate and what wasn't. You really kind of have to do a lot of Googling, a lot of online research. But the problem years ago is that you just didn't know which online research was valid and which isn't. And the actual material, I'd say, online has gotten much more robust. There's um, more known legitimate sites that you can go to. Do you have to one to recommend for that? For our, all of the coins we list, I'd recommend Bitbo. Her own site, yeah. When, That's like great. I said, when, yeah. we, when we started um, the company, we recognized, we wanted to make it more legitimate, the industry. So we wanted to 
also have our site be a place where people could go to find information. Um, so for all of the coins that we list, uh, we have specific information about all of them and, and then links to their white papers, et cetera. I'd also say sites like CoinMarketCap um, are ones that I certainly look at every day for price, volume information and for really robust okay. information um, as well. So, so now once somebody has kind of picked what coin they want to invest in, then how would they go about actually making a purchase? So after you pick the coin, then you need to have a platform or some source of access to buy that. And why I say some source of access is, say you choose Bitcoin. That's by far, it's the largest market cap. Um, it's the most frequently purchased cryptocurrency, the most frequently traded. And you could buy that at an ATM. So you don't have to have an online platform. You could literally go to a Bitcoin ATM and, and purchase Bitcoin. Um, so you need to have a point of access to purchase it. Um, there are pros and cons to an ATM versus a, an online platform. But if you're choosing an online platform, as we talked about before, there have been a number of failures. So it's really important to research the online platform. And I think a couple of key things to think about when you're thinking about which one to choose are um, transparency. So who are the founders? Who are the owners? Who is the management team? Um, are these people that you feel that you could trust with your financial transactions because you're pot potentially moving large sums and no matter how much you're losing, moving, you don't want to lose it just because the platform up and folds one day, which we have seen happen. Yeah. Um, so I think looking at the platform, looking at who the backers are, looking at who, the, who runs it, looking at the jurisdiction, are you dealing with Canada, who you know is regulating these platforms in some way, shape, form? Are you dealing with some foreign country that has potentially no regulation? Um, is there access to the Canadian banking system? All of these things are, are important when you're doing this in the jurisdiction that you live in. Okay. And then where does someone actually hold the money? Like uh, there's a Bitcoin wallet. I've heard of this before, but companies like yours, do they actually hold the assets and investments themselves as well for the person? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of different things to think about here. All or most online exchanges will hold the assets for you if you want. So if you open up a Bitvo account and you want to leave, buy Bitcoin and you want to leave it in your Bitvo account, we will hold that for you and you trust us to hold that for you. Um, a lot of our customers do that. A lot of our customers also choose to move it off to an external wallet. Um, an external wallet can take ver make various different forms. There are electronic providers like a Trezor or a Ledger where you get what looks like a USB drive um, and you can hold the crypto on that via a program. Um, you can, it could be something as simple as a paper wallet where you scan a QR code on this paper wallet and that QR code holds all the electronic information required to retrieve that Bitcoin at a later point in time. So there I certainly see. are a lot of different wallet options. Um, similar to researching exchange, it's, it's important to research the quality of the wallet provider I, and the legitimacy of the wallet provider. I feel like who wouldn't want to hold it with someone reputable like your company? Because you hear those crazy horror stories where someone has a million dollars of Bitcoin on a USB drive and they lose it somewhere or they, yeah. I remember the first time that I invested in Bitcoin, I had a wallet where if you forgot the key to the password, gone. Yeah. You'll never, yeah. there's no like customer service, reset nope. your password kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So, nope. um, so when it comes to security and like keeping passwords and that kind of thing, and we've heard about these big cryptocurrency exchange hacks or mm -hmm. the companies that you mentioned that went under and people lost lots of money, what should people be aware of when it comes to security of their cryptocurrency? 
and what should people look out for? Well, again, it, if you're leaving on exchange, it, it comes down to uh, finding a trusted exchange, so trusted jurisdiction, trusted management. Um, the original thought for OG Bitcoiners are not your keys, not your coins. So for anyone operating in the industry for a long period of time, um, it's not in their religion to keep coins on an exchange. So they would all be strong proponents of holding their own keys. And the wallets have become slightly more user-friendly over time. It, it is certainly mind-boggling to set it up for the first time, but they now come with safeguards like seed keys. So I have a ledger, for example. Um, it's a little USB drive, like I said, but I also have a seed key, which is a list of 24 different random words that if the ledger that I held was either destroyed or lost, I can take the seed key and restore all of my coins onto a new ledger. So there are some safeguards in place if you are managing your own keys. It's that sounds a, extremely complicated. <laughs> the first time I ever set up a ledger, I uh, was a bit terrified. And, and, where did you, and where did you learn how to do that? You just do. I mean, Ledger is an incredibly <laughs> reputable product. So um, they do have some online research resources um, on their website where they, you can go and you get a little box kit that comes with it and you kind of follow the steps. It's more terrifying because you've just never done it before. You don't really know. Like the steps actually in themselves were probably fairly simple. But um, when you're moving Bitcoin like that, if you make a mistake, uh, like you said, it can, it can just be gone. Uh, so do a test transaction, do a small amount, $10, $10. Don't try to move it all at once. Don't try this at home, everybody. We're not legally <laughs> responsible if you lose money investing in <laughs> cryptocurrency. There's our legal, there's our legal <laughs> disclaimer. We have one at the beginning of the podcast as, as well. So don't try this at home. Uh, so yeah. we spoke about this before on the pre-interview, Pam, and it was... Um, you can't necessarily tell people to invest in cryptocurrency or to get involved in it, but you could tell them how to. For myself, I'm a financial planner out of Toronto, and I know when something's becoming mainstream, when more people start asking me about it, one, but also when my friend's parents start asking right. me, the 60-year-olds, right? So yeah. just last week, someone called me and said, hey, my mom wants to invest in cryptocurrency. She's in her mid to late 60s, right? And I'm like, why do you want to invest in cryptocurrency? But for these people that would want to invest in cryptocurrency, would you maybe tell us why someone or why it's becoming so popular? And if someone wants to do it very safely, like what's the go-to way of doing it without yeah. all the complicated ledgers and the kits and whatnot? Yeah. Well, I'd say um, from our perspective, the reason why we, we, we're not a registered investment dealer. Uh, so we don't provide what we would call investment advice. I don't even call it investing. I call it trading. Okay. Um, and we do as a company policy. But if someone wanted to purchase or sell um, any cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ether, et cetera, um, probably the simplest way, I would say, is to open up an account on an exchange like BitBo, put some money in, try it out, um, and then kind of learn that way. You can open up a BitBo account in less than five minutes. So you, you enter your name, your address, your date of birth. We electronically verify you. Um, and then you're off to the races. You can fund your account by e-transfer. You could have your first crypto trade place within an hour of setting up your account uh, fairly easily. So that, that's pretty straightforward. Anytime you use a platform, as we discussed, there, you have that counterparty risk where you need to choose a reputable exchange, so make sure you do that. Um, but it is pretty simple. 
maybe this is a little old school or traditional, but cryptocurrency is a highly volatile investment. And Warren Buffett, other financial leaders, they continuously critique kind of the validity of the crypto space as an investment because there's no, as they put it, tangible or intrinsic value in owning a cryptocurrency. And a lot of the banks even are not diving in and kind of making it an option to their clients or in their portfolios either. So what are your thoughts on that? And why do you think these traditional financial leaders are not adopting cryptocurrency as openly as the general public is? It is difficult to wrap your head around as we spoke of and Warren Buffett as an example, he's a fundamental investor. So he's looked, looked used to looking at companies, doing detailed analysis on the company, and then placing an investment that he'll hold for a number of years. He's a buy and hold type investor. So um, Bitcoin would be kind of more similar to like a commodity, for example, like we talked about, it has value only because people believe that it has value. Gold is in theory, just a rock but it's valued as gold because people believe that gold has value. So I would think of it more like a commodity like that than a company um, for that reason. And that's just not kind of what guys like Warren Buffett, et cetera, do. The banks, I think, are an interesting example because you had a number of the world's largest banks initially come out and say, Bitcoin's a scam. JP Morgan, for example, right. is one that I think of where Jamie Dimon made some very negative comments on Bitcoin and then came back and said, Actually, we're kind of getting a dedicated team to exploring the digital asset space. Goldman Sachs would be the same. They're going to dedicate a team to exploring the digital asset space. They're still not at the point where they're holding it and recommending it to companies or to their customers, but they're starting to get into the more infrastructure types of it, like custody, for example. Mm-hmm. And especially, actually, now that you bring that up, because uh, another thing that's pretty popular that people ask me about as well is the whole smart contracts thing. Would you be able to maybe define what a smart contract is using the blockchain? Yeah. So Ethereum is a perfect example of a smart contract type blockchain. What a smart contract is meant to do is to predefine the terms of what would be a contract and have that contract execute automatically once those terms have been met. Um, So traditional contracts, you put it in place between two people and then, um, as the situation plays out, you come back to each other and say, okay, I did this, now you owe me this money. What a smart contract does is it it electronically receives those parameters and once they've been met, automatically executes the contract. So that avoids any kind of like legal fiduciary intermediary trust or something like that. Exactly. Okay. Where do you think the future of the crypto space is going to go over the next five to 10 years? You think it'll become more mainstream Um, Do you think there's going to be that hype curve where a lot of people are, it's going to fizzle out? What are your thoughts on that? I I do believe that it will continue to become an increasing part of our financial infrastructure. I think it's come a long way in the 10 years since Bitcoin was invented. Um, And you do see massive players now like Fidelity, for example, uh, getting into the space in a very major way. It's becoming more and more part of that financial infrastructure and an important part. XRP, for example, in terms of cross-border remittance, it's really forcing the banking industry, which historically moves quite slow, to advance quite rapidly, um, which from a cost perspective and a speed perspective will ultimately benefit consumers. Um, And then you get into things like the unbanked populations in certain parts of Africa, et cetera, and think of what Hmm. percentage of the population 
that represents, or if you think about um, countries like Argentina and Venezuela, where their home currency has deflated in value so much by the decisions that the government makes, um, I think that pushes the mass populace towards an alternative, and, and cryptocurrency is that alternative. Um, I do think, though, what we've saw over the last 10 years, so it started with Bitcoin and the number of cryptocurrencies spawned into the thousands. What I do think it, you'll see is you'll start to see that number, and it already has, but you'll start to see that number come down again. Um, I think it'll come down to kind of certain specific use cases that address a very specific need. So maybe Bitcoin, for example, is like a digital gold, as people constantly refer to it, meaning that is that store of value against rising government um, mm -hmm. inflation. And Ethereum, as you referenced, could be based on smart contracts and allow that platform or that blockchain for um, developers to develop, develop certain applications off of. XRP, as I mentioned, is very good for international remittance. So it becomes that one where if you're sending money back home to Singapore, instead of sending a wire transfer, which can take days and cost you a large percentage of the money that you're sending back to your parents, for example, you could send XRP and it could be there in less than 10 seconds and cost fractions of a penny. Yeah, so I think you'll have some very real-world use cases where the number of cryptocurrencies will dwell down to to meet those real-world use cases. I agree on that because we, we're in Canada and the inflation rate is pretty steady and we have a pretty stable banking system. But other places in the world, most of the population don't even have a bank account. Or if they do, if they do like you said, in hyperinflation countries, their money is getting devalued by the days that go by, right? So... Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I could see how it could become more used as time goes on. You're highly knowledgeable about the financial world and financial literacy. And we started this podcast, What They Did Not Teach You in School, because I noticed that being a 20-something-year-old in a 65-year-old banking industry. And I wanted to kind of educate people on financial literacy topics. Why do you think not more people are educated in financial literacy as maybe they should be. Honestly, Notice it's that thing yeah. that was near. Yeah. So it's funny you say that. Like I referenced my sister earlier and her and I 10 years ago and our own careers got in the way and we never got around to it, but we wanted to start something called finance 101 because in school you learn all these things. If you take algebra and geometry and chemistry, a very few real world practications, but then you have, something so simple as everyday banking and investing that they actually don't teach you in school. And, and I actually would be curious as to your reason as to why. Um, I don't know. I think it's a, such a valuable life skill. I'm shocked that it's so void from the education system. I have absolutely no, cool, no <laughs> clue why that's the case. I'd love to talk. Maybe we, one of our podcast episodes should be with someone from the school board about that. But uh, <laughs> That's yeah. a fantastic idea. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. You think it would be basic. Like it should be like a math class, but teaching you about basic personal finance and balancing a budget. Right. My and understanding, having a mom in, in teaching, is they are moving more and more in that direction, but still not, not relevant enough. Uh, that's for sure. So Yeah, yeah even uh, people say, oh, Anthony, why would you want your clients to know more because then your job would be at threatened. Right. But my thing is my job would be easier if more people understood because it would be less yeah. of a battle. Right. Yeah. Right. I totally agree. I ask this to every single guest that's on the podcast. There's a lot of things that individuals know that not a lot of other people know this world of 
cryptocurrency is so familiar to you, but for a lot of people, it's a completely different language, right? Mm -hmm. And because of that, people take things for granted. If there was something that you know that you wish other people knew, what would you say that is, that would be? Oh, man. So this is a this is a hot topic right now, and I do sit in Alberta, and I am from Ontario. So um, the one thing, I was listening to a speech by Brad Wall, who's the premier of Saskatchewan, interestingly, um, mm -hmm. so not in Alberta, and this is the one thing I wish people understood about energy and oil. So if we continue to use our cell phones, et cetera, et cetera, um, then there'll be continued demand for energy. Um, so we can all make a personal choice to try to reduce that, and that's our personal choice. Until the energy depletes, um, we have to service it. So as a country, we continually fight over this pipeline situation. And the debate against building the pipeline is they don't want the oil sands, et cetera. But if you choose, not, and this is what Brad said in his speech, by choosing not to build the pipeline and send West Coast energy to the East Coast of Canada, um, you're choosing to source it from somewhere else because the energy, like I said, it still exists. So instead of sourcing it internally, you're choosing to source it from countries like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. Instead of choosing to source it from Canada, a jurisdiction we should, in theory, have some trust in, you're choosing it to source it from countries that don't even support, in some cases, basic human rights. Mm -hmm. And when you put it like that, I can't believe we're a country so divided against ourselves. I love wow. that. Wow. wow completely unrelated to crypto. <laughs> no, I, no, that's great. You know what? I don't think anybody I've ever asked that question answers it like to their to the topic of the podcast. I'm very few people <laughs> do, but I love that's that true. about that. And yeah. I, I hear a lot about that debate, Pam, and like yeah. that was a paradigm shifting perspective right there. So thank you for yeah. that. Last question. Where can people find you, connect with you online, learn more about your mission, your uh, your company, and connect with you? Yeah, so start with the company. It's uh, bitfo.com is the website address. For me personally, um, my bio and my email is, is listed there under the About Us section. Um, but also I'm on all of the platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. Um, bitfo is on all those platforms as well. It's me personally. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> that was so educational. I'm gonna, people are going to really enjoy this for sure. I hope so. It was fun. Okay, thank Thanks. you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is What They Did Not Teach You in School. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at The Wise Investor. Until next time. This is What They Did Not Teach You in School. We hope to see you soon. <laughs>